Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guests today, Mike Alkire, president of Premier, and uh, Jonathan Slotkin. Dr. Slotkin is uh, Associate Chief Medical Informatics Officer and Vice Chair of Neurosurgery at Geisinger, and he also has a dual role with uh, Contigo as a Chief Medical Officer. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, you must welcome. You must welcome. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about the COVID nineteen surveillance tool that uh, Premier has just launched, and uh, you've started piloting it at Geisinger. So, Patty, we um, over the last year or so, fourteen months, we have been building out a technology to really help with the panel guidelines, which, as you're well aware, are guidelines that. CMS are, are implementing to, you know, get after uh, high cost images. And so the focus really has been, you know, building out these pipes to Epic and Cerner and to Athena, these electronic medical records to put embed protocols to ensure that, you know, patients were appropriately, you know, utilizing these, these high technology images. And so when COVID hit, we sort of pivoted the the technology. And because we've already had the pipes built into all the EMRs, we found out that if you looked at the symptoms of patients that were presenting, there is a a number of characteristics around the symptoms that you could obviously see that uh, there was a high probability that these patients uh, were COVID patients. And we thought that was incredibly meaningful because we could do it in real time. So at the point, you know, that 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 physician is meeting with that patient, we can identify somebody that has, you know, those those critical symptoms. And then, you know, given that data, obviously we could use that to, and we can, you know, dive down into the zip code level. We can use, you know, that data or give that data to organizations that, are interested to understand where surges are occurring or where there's a high prevalence of the disease. Also, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest on behalf of the federal government and the states to understand where surges are happening. And so, you know, the whole idea is to provide this real-time data mechanism to inform these public health officials around, you know, do I do I open you know, the economy or, or do I, you know, keep it shut? Or if I've got it open in some degree, but I see a surge, you know, am I putting the appropriate resources, you know, in those communities? So we, we think it's, you know, very, very critical. We think it's part of a three-legged stool. We think to manage the virus, obviously you need this syndromic surveillance. We obviously think you need this, you know, contact tracing. And then obviously you need to continue to we need to do a, a better job of, of uh, rolling out testing, you know, with higher accuracy rates. Yeah, you know, so Patty, the problem that I think we all wanted to solve for is that existing syndromic surveillance in 2020 is dramatically lacking. I think it'll surprise many of your listeners when they hear what those systems actually consist of. 
So existing state and federal syndromic surveillance consists largely of reactive, non-real-time reporting of disease diagnoses, and by the way, that are picked up mostly in emergency departments. So these tools run on 20-year-old technology. They're not automated. And in some areas, clinicians and public health officials actually need to print data from EHRs, manually fill in and fax reporting forms to public health officials. Some of these forms take up to 30 minutes to fill out. And in some instances, the lag between a patient receiving a positive test result and the reporting of that data can be as long as seven days. You know, and of course, and Patty, you've spent a lot of your career on this problem. We have troves of important data, like positive COVID results, signs, symptoms, but sitting in siloed EHRs across different hospital systems, you know, in care settings across the country. So the nation desperately needs an automated, real-time, effective national surveillance system. And that was the major impetus for this work. So the team set out to build exactly that. And the goals were to build an application that can be used by health system states and federal government, just like Mike, Mike said, to perform you know, several really important tasks, like to know when and where COVID is surging before the numbers tell us that, to better determine which patients are more likely to become profoundly ill, and to provide healthcare systems with risk and severity-adjusted information to predict supply needs. So the tool, and I know we'll, we'll talk about it more here in a few, but it uses natural language processing and machine learning to scan free text notes and orders for hundreds of phrases like trouble breathing or loss of taste and other free text and discrete data for, you know, signs, symptoms, and other indicators of infection. And using this approach, the system's able to rapidly identify patients who are presenting with signs and symptoms of COVID-19. Let's drill into that a little bit. This is very interesting and, of course, very timely as well, given everything that we're going through today. Uh, the tool is essentially an NLP algorithm that mines uh, clinical notes and uh, information in the form of text, uh, unstructured data, essentially sitting inside electronic health record systems. And this is the route that many COVID-19 apps are taking in the context of dealing with the pandemic and having you know, early warning surveillance systems and so on. Can you talk a little bit, John, about how you use this information as a decision support tool, not just to flag patients at risk of infection, but in terms of closing the loop? What do you do with that information? What happens next? How do you, you know, just your care management or treatment and how do you integrated with your reporting requirements. Can you talk a little bit about just closing the loop with sure. the information that comes out of this? Yeah, sure. So we and other health systems are, are very eager to start using this application. And in addition to Geisinger, Atrium, Community Health Network, Advent, and I think over 30 other systems are coming online with the application shortly. And there's some really valuable ways that health systems can use the information from this application, even really above and beyond this important work of syndromic surveillance. So I think of it that systems can identify flare-ups based on health system zip codes. And we think often it'll be one to four, even more days before lab test results come back in some instances. And in some patients that don't even get tested or wouldn't have been tested, and usually a week or more before hospitalization, you know, based on symptom progression. And I think that 
with this kind of foresight, systems can do things like plan decreases in elective procedures well in advance of being of being just reactive to public numbers, forecast equipment, bed and ICU needs, really based on incidents and even the severity of disease that the tool picks up in the outpatient setting. And the tool can also identify patients in the ambulatory setting that are high risk for admission or maybe are more appropriate for a home care environment with home pulse oximetry or other programs. And I think it's important to call out two really powerful features that are coming to the app really just in the next several weeks. One is that the system will present a pretest probability based on symptoms to help providers interpret negative diagnostic test results, which we know can be inaccurate, sometimes significantly inaccurate, and both true negatives and false negatives for that matter. And also, and this is where you get to action you know, at the point of care, which a premier always thinks about. And that, that's that the team has also embedded the NIH COVID treatment guidelines right into the CDS tool. And I think it's important to point out, you know, Stanson has over 400 CDS hospital system customers, 300 hospital system customers in the Stanson tool. So this affects and is live and can be live at over two to 300,000 provider systems. And so in this way, with treatment guidelines at the point of care, you can support providers with real-time interventions and to translate evidence into practice, which, you know, I think is a, is a core mission for, for Premier. Right. One of the things that I read about when I saw the news release on the tool is that it works across different EHR systems. And we all know that Interoperability has been a challenge for a long time. It's getting better. We've got the CMS final ruling that's going to effect in 2021. We are going to see more seamless data flow, but it is still a significant challenge as of today. So can you talk to how this works? How do you look across an epic server as an example or other systems out there? And is, is that a differentiator? Because I want to link it to the question of how is this different from other COVID-19 tools that are out there. Patty, you point out, and this is another thing you've spent a lot of your career on, is that is that siloing of information and disparity HRs and across different health systems, it not only limits innovation, but in a situation like COVID-19, it's affecting patients, right, immediately, right now. And, you know, thankfully, in the last few years, as you mentioned, we've all seen significant progress in these areas. But this tool, and it's got a name now, Atom, which is Advanced Detection, Analysis, and Management. It works well with Epic, Cerner, and Athena. And I think it's going to be live over the next, you know, couple of weeks or month or two in Meditech. And, you know, Mike mentioned the rapidity of getting those solutions live across multiple EHR vendors comes from the fact that the backbone of this solution is Stanton's PANA tool, you know, live at 300 hospitals. So, What this then brings is from a machine learning standpoint, you're going to get the combined experience and data of all of these hospital systems across three and now soon to be four EHR vendors that allow powerful improvement of the system's machine learning algorithm, not just from one system, but from all of them. But I think it's important to call out here, this data is never going to be sold to pharma companies and device companies, but there is power in the aggregation of this data. 
and Mike can elaborate, the advanced discussions with several states and parts of the federal government, but important to be clear here, and we know at Geisinger that this data that Stanson and Premier have will never be shared with any outside parties like a state or federal agency without the provider system's written permission, which I think many provider systems, given the mission that we're trying to accomplish here, would be open to. The only thing I'd, I'd add in all that is that, you know, Premier has taken a pretty significant, you know, focus from an advocacy standpoint for interoperability for all of the reasons that Jonathan said. We, we don't, you know, obviously we want one ability to f- track a patient throughout the progression of the disease, no matter where they're actually getting care provided. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time working with various data sets to integrate those and to to work with these EMR vendors and other vendors to ensure that they've got open data sources and those kinds of things. But the Jonathan's Jonathan's point, I I do want to sort of make sure I, I do sort of tie this all together from a COVID standpoint. So the reason it's so meaningful for the states and the feds to sort of step up here and really look at those, that three-legged stool of controlling the virus is that, you know, there is such a high false negative testing, you know, depending on when you test versus when you actually get the disease. There were a couple of few articles three weeks ago, one from the Annals of Internal Medicine, the other from the New England Journal of Medicine, but they, they talked about significantly high false negatives. That's really an issue if you think about you know, sending somebody on their way saying that, you know, you don't have the disease and in fact, you have the disease. And so, you know, what those articles actually presented was the fact that the further away you are from being tested when you actually acquire the disease, you know, it obviously your false negatives go down. So, you know, you're waiting oftentimes two or three days to get decent results. And and what we're saying is we have the ability to do that real time looking at the symptoms. I want to also, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, dig a little bit deeper into the Stanson tool that you mentioned and how that creates synergies for not just the business, but for uh, the the level of the tool itself. Really the uh, whole thesis for Stanson for, you know, our investment from a capital standpoint really was you know, we're a performance improvement company. So we're all about helping healthcare systems drive improvements from a, you know, a cost reduction standpoint and a quality and safety improvement standpoint. And so what we had been doing over the years is obviously taking our best areas or amounts of data and the clinical settings and safety and, and operations, which is labor and, and then supply chain integrating those data sets and creating insights into performance improvement for the healthcare delivery systems. And, you know, that was great because those insights drove a ton of value. But what Stanson actually allows us to do is to really create an imprint, if you will, of those improvements. So Stanson actually writes into the, the, you know, the Epic and the Cerner and the Athena EMRs, you know, the, the, the appropriate protocols that should be followed that are maximizing high quality, great safety and low cost. And so that was the whole initial thesis, which was we wanted to hardwire those improvements to the point of care into the workflow at the EMR. Right. And it's all, it's all about having the decision support tool at the point of care and being able to 
act on that at the point of care. And that is kind of the holy grail or the mantra for any kind of decision support tool. Now, I want to go back to a couple of things that uh, you mentioned. One, uh, you you pointedly mentioned that you're very, very careful about data privacy. And I read a study recently, I think it was done by the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign that looked at some 50 different COVID-19 apps and they they were very concerned about the lack of clarity around what is really going to happen to the data. Like, how are you actually explicitly providing assurances to your patient community that the data is data privacy is going to be uh, maintained? And you know, how do you ensure that? How do you actually execute that when there are so many yeah. different uh, people getting access to it? So, just you have to appreciate that you know, Premier is a an organization that's been in data analytics, clinical data analytics, labor data analytics, health information, patient health information for years. So we've been at it for probably more than 25 years. So we've got a very, very rigorous and and consistent process to ensure that, you know, the data rights are appropriately being followed and and our ability to de-identify data, you know, we've been doing it for years. So if there is an institution out there that has the ability to do it and that has been doing it and that has processes and technologies to do it, it's us. So, Jonathan, I'll let you get into a bit more. Detail. Yeah, I mean, I think, Patty, this, this is it's a critically important question. And I think it for all of us, it's a fascinating time to think about balancing public health needs and privacy in our own minds. And also even what each of us is willing to tolerate in our own personal lives during a worldwide pandemic. And I think, you know, as Mike said, the premier team feels that if it doesn't have the trust of its partners and their patients, we don't have anything, right? And Geisinger certainly feels that way. And I think a lot of the apps that you mentioned are often going to be consumer-facing apps. And I think it's important to call out for anybody that kind of just dips into the surface of this, that this is, it's not a patient-consumer-facing application. This is a robust clinical decision support tool that's been live for years, that's been repurposed, and sits with Health Systems EHR. So what that means, as you know well, is it sits with extensive BAAs and other agreements that all of Stanson's existing work is covered by. So it's the type of software and activity covered by HIPAA and has privacy literally, you know, protected, protected by law. And I think, you know, I think, Patty, it's important to point out that existing syndromic surveillance in our states and country, as I mentioned, it involves printing documents, filling some aspects out by hand often, manually keying certain forms, and sometimes even faxing results. And that, you know, is absolutely a system which is not only not modern, but also really insecure from a privacy standpoint. So I think we think that this kind of automated, fully digitized, secured solution to disease surveillance, it leads with privacy and is a significant improvement over the existing model. Yeah. Well, what triggers the tool itself, since this is more like a surveillance tool? What what is the event that triggers this tool? Right. Yeah. So for the informatics wonks that are your listeners, and I know you have many that are, there are three. And it started with one, and the Stanson team and, and Geisinger's helped and others have worked with Epic and other EHR vendors for the rapid expansion. And I should call out that Epic, and I'm sure Cerner, but Geisinger's an Epic shop, so that's the one I can speak to, 
has been a tremendous partner here, understanding that during a national emergency, we need to you know, always move smartly, but we need to move quickly. So three triggers really fire the tool's ability to take a look and give actionable insights. One is the ordering of an imaging test. And of course, in COVID, that's critical and is the backbone of what Stanton's functionality always was. The other is order of a COVID test, which right. is another great place to fire functionality that takes a look at natural language processing on free text and also does analysis on discrete data, by the way, at the time. And the third is that when a COVID test is resulted and the charts opened to analyze the COVID test, that's a moment that, that there's a dip in and a look in. And right. we've, and Epic's helped with this, done extensive analysis on the overhang time associated with this. And these are overhang times significantly less than half a second in the hundreds of millisecond time right. frame. You mentioned false negatives a couple of times. Have you had a problem with false positives? Not really. False negatives, the big enemy right now, you know, as you know. And in terms of what have we seen, how do you validate a tool like this? Early testing that the team has done has found that when we look at symptoms using the methods that we've talked about and compare to a later positive PCR viral test, there, you know, to answer your false positive question, probably about 4%. And so that's really good, but the team's making it better. And I think one really important way to make it better and also to validate it is something that's ongoing with the health system now, and that's retrospective cohort evaluation. So, of course, you know, we and everybody, we all systems have months of medical records on patients who later go on to test positive and negative and folks that do well clinically or unfortunately, in some cases, do not do well clinically. Right. So what we're doing is looking back at a cohort of patients who went on to test positive where they know how they did clinically and also a group who went on to test negative. So not only does that allow validation, but you and you know many of your listeners may not know have a very big history in the, the machine learning and AI area yourself, in, in fact, we can not only validate the tool there, but also do data-driven research to tune and improve the algorithms to you know, significantly increase the sensitivity and specificity of the tool with a known data set and, and tuning. Well, related question on that obviously is evidence, and you were kind of going there, I think. Are you building the evidence for this tool as you go along? Well, some of those initial looks that I mentioned have already occurred and led to that data I mentioned. The other studies that I mentioned, like the retrospective validation and the tuning, is happening as we speak from a, I'd call it more quality improvement than research perspective, because I do think it is quality improvement work. But as far as the machine learning algorithms tuning, that's an ongoing iterative process that's consistent. Yeah, we're coming up to the close uh, here, but I have a couple of quick questions. One of the things that has uh, really impressed me is the level of public-private collaboration that COVID-19 has brought about. I see many examples at the state, city level, and uh, one of my guests uh, on this podcast talked about uh, you know, what they're doing in the city of Austin, for instance. And I see many, many great examples of how public and private sector are coming together to really address this. Can you talk a little bit about how this tool 
is being used for public health in general. Let's say, you know, you guys in there, you're in, you're in Pennsylvania, you talk about how this is contributing to you know, public health efforts, especially contact tracing and all that, which is now really a big, big thing. I think exactly, Patty. There's a ton of important opportunity in this area. And we know that contact tracing, et cetera, usually falls under local and state health departments, but they're all spread thin. And, you know, I think we all saw that that study that Ars Technica wrote up that we would actually need 300,000 contact tracers to do this job right. Yeah. We're well short. Yeah. Yeah. So Geisinger quickly realized, you know, that it's already expert in managing testing, communicating results, and treating those who test positive. So Geisinger's performing contact tracing as a public-private partnership now has 24 employees spending significant parts of their work week on contact tracing. And as of a few weeks ago, the team had made over 2,700 phone calls to follow up on 1,600 positive patients. And, you know, this directly benefits patients, providers, and communities. And as far as then, how do you take the Stanson tool and actively connect that to states? Um, Something Mike, I'm sure, can elaborate on. Yeah, it's just, you know, I think at the end of the day, these health officials that we're having conversations with are, are trying to really have these decisions from a public health standpoint be informed by data and science. And so the idea is if you can, if you have, you know, what we suggested, which is that three-legged stool of testing and, and more advanced testing and, and getting, you know, more refined testing and better testing, plus uh, contact tracing, which we always think is going to be something that, you know, is going to be debatable. Jonathan made a great comment early on about, you know, the debate of positive societal impact versus, you know, liberties being sort of tightened. But we do know there are a number of countries that are using iPhones and those kinds of things to, you know, track as to where folks have been that, you know, have the virus and to be able to alert people that, you know, they may have been exposed to the virus. And so that's a, a very meaningful discussion that we need to have and a debate that we need to have in the U.S. around, you know, the importance of that. And then finally, you know, we've been talking about this, you know, uh, syndromic surveillance. And, and the reason it's so critical, is, as I said earlier, is that if you're the governor of a state, you know, early on in the virus, you had, you know, governors of huge states deciding to shut the entire state down when, you know, maybe there was only a surge in eight, nine percent of all the of the counties that represented, you know, 60 or 70 percent of the population. But those other counties, you know, were very, very limitedly impacted. And so yeah. all we're saying is that there is technology and there is data that is at the zip code level that can provide a, a great deal of information around how to balance public health versus opening the economy. That's number one. Number two, you've, we've heard such a a lot of conversation about how this is disproportionately affecting the cultures of color or people of color in and, and the urban settings. And our technology actually has the ability to identify those, you know, those issues and, you know, again, inform public health officials to sort of think through what's the best way to provide capabilities and services to those parts of the population. So I don't know, we think there's a you know a couple of incredibly important use cases that public health officials should leverage the tool for. That's very well said. Well, John and Mike, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this. I think this is a very important initiative, and uh, 
I uh, hope to uh, get you folks back again on this podcast, maybe a few months down the road when you have more learnings to share from how the tool has worked on the field. And again, all the very best uh, with the launch of this new product. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.